This is Stardust and Soil, the Enchanted Soul podcast. And we are the Manitas Oscuras, the Dark Little Sisters. We discuss wayfinding through celestial cycles and reconnecting to the wild rhythms of nature so you can reclaim your magic and surrender to your own sacred sanctuary. Integrating earth, sky, and soul. Yes, I'm Alexia. I'm Ariana. We are your hosts. We are hosties. Hosties with the mosties. Um, <laughs> welcome, welcome, friends. Hello. This is new. This is new for us. Welcome We're to our first, our first episode, our first recording, our first episode, our first recording. We are so stoked on this, and basically, we thought boys do it. So why can't I? And then that hit us in the heart, and we were like. Why not take a we crazy like, dance? I think that means we can. And why not do a crazy dance while we're at it? Today, we are going to talk about some of the benefits that nature can have on our bodies, our mental health, our joy, our gratitude, our experience as humans. Like, what, what would that be? What would a benefit be for... Oh, oh. I'm so glad that you asked. Getting into I'm nature... So- I'm so stoked that you asked that question because the physiological response to being outside in nature is real and it is measurable. Michelle Kondo is a research social scientist with the USDA Forest Service's Northern Research Station. She said there are many physical and psychological benefits of nature that scientists have observed, which can better help us understand how nature supports wellness in the body, mind, and community. There's so much research on this. There's research by Stanford. There are um, studies all up in the National Library of Medicine that you can look at for how these benefits definitely impact your everyday life. I find that so interesting because I I feel like as a society, we have definitely removed ourselves and built, I mean, like I'm sitting in one right now, a room with many walls that are separating me from nature, which I can appreciate. They're keeping me warm. Um, they're yeah. keeping out the bugs. It's um, very yes. cold outside and snowy, and I don't want to live in a cold, damp home. But with that separation, literal, I feel like there has been a more spiritual and intangible separation as well. I sometimes talk with people who say they like are not that into nature. Oh, my God. And this just gets to me because I firmly believe that we are nature. We we are. We are. We are meant to uh, definitely live in tandem with it as well. Yes, it is cold outside. We are we are currently recording on the 29th of January in 2024. Um, in I'm the dealing with hemisphere some... of the United States. I'm in Minnesota, but there is no snow, which is interesting. However, it is still very, very cold. And Honestly, sometimes that's the hardest time of year to get outside and reintegrate with the outdoors, with nature in general, with the sun. I mean, tons of people struggle with a vitamin D deficiency in the winter, which can lead to SAD. I am one of those people. I think my sister is one of those people as well. Yeah, definitely am. I hear we're sad. Seasonal depression. 
this is what it looks like. And so for me, I find that even though it is harder to get outside, I have to put on like seven extra layers of clothing and it takes legitimately more time and energy. And then, but, but if I'm able to undertake that effort in the beginning and go get outside, it is rejuvenating. It is bracing because it is cold, but then it's also just kind of fun and exciting. You get a little burst of that fresh air and, um, you know, and I, I can definitely see how, how immersing yourself, even in the wintertime and when it is cold, like you immediately get those benefits that you were talking about. Oh yeah. Um, so the Stanford study, I, I mentioned earlier, reachers found that, um, they may as well prescribe nature as a mental health medicine because, Studies have found that walking in nature yield measurable mental benefits and may reduce the risk of depression. So we are all kind of uh, dealing with some crazy stuff happening in the world. It's been a mad few years, and I know a lot more people are recognizing their struggles with mental wellness and the taboo around it is starting to die off. And with that, we even have comedians making jokes about how we're bringing plants and trees into the inside and it's like, oh, maybe we should be spending more time outside. (laughs) Right. And here, like you were saying, like it's, it's harder to get outside. So I do feel like in the wintertime, having my inside plants definitely fortify and sustain that, but, but it's no substitute and it's hard even to, to get them to thrive indoors. Like, yes, it's, it's a challenge, but Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, today we are going to have a couple different segments for you. I'm going to lead the soil segment. Ariana is going to lead the soul segment. And we're both going to have a little little couple of notes on the stardust segment. But um, I'm going to kick it off. So this is the soil segment where I share some fun facts about a mush and a bush. A mush and a bush. What's that? <laughs> it's my cute way of saying a mushroom and a plant (laughs) i got mushes and i got bushes so soil runs fairly deep in my veins um passed down through generations of farmers working in the midwest working the land in south dakota my first home was actually on my family farm as an infant and then i spent my childhood at the base of pahasapa the beautiful Black Hills, where I fell in love with the woods, embracing the inimitable awe that only wild nature can inspire. To quote the esteemed Potawatomi scientist, ecologist, botanist, and professor Robin Wall Kimmerer, is the land a source of belongings or a source of belonging? Mm. Mm. Yes. I love that. Mm. I love that quote. Robin Wall Kimmerer is such an inspiration. Um, because I really find the way that she takes the science of the world, the ecological sciences, and really brings poetry to them, brings yeah. them into a spiritual lens. And that is that is that cross-section that I'm looking for, like the natural 
and the progressive, like, where do we, how can we integrate these two different concepts? Yeah, I guess I can say that my investment in naturalism has led me to explore forests and mountains and deserts all around the world, learning survivalist skills and tuning into the wondrous ecosystems that surround our tiny little human existence. If you know me, which Ariana does. um, I do. Yes. But if you don't, now you will. That I am obsessed with mycology. It's um, the science of mushrooms. I am eternally fascinated by mycorrhizal fungi, mycelia networks, and their relationships and community with most terrestrial plants. The vast strangeness amongst species of mushrooms and the fact that new variations are still being discovered. I rarely go a day outdoors without identifying little fruiting bodies symbiosis and i i'm always whispering soft little edifications to their brilliance i'm always like hey buddy (laughs) i'm just a strong proponent of talking to the plants for sure and they they might be like back up buddy give me some distance but i'm just like (laughs) you're so beautiful i love you bye so there's a walking path real near my house that i i walk frequently and um the first time i walked that path i found some puffball mushrooms that were very large they're about the size of like like a like a softball, like larger than a baseball, about like a softball. Yeah. Neither of us play softball, so I guess maybe my opinion of a softball is not entirely accurate, but it was larger than a baseball, smaller than a soccer ball. And they were prime mm-hmm. for foraging and taking home and eating in puffball steaks. And I was admiring them, just looking at them and touching them and whispering, hello, I love you to them. And this man walks by and he was like, be careful. Some mushrooms are poisonous, you know. And I was like, <laughs> and I was like, yes, some of them are. I didn't know that. <laughs> and I'm just still like bent over, like playing with this little mushroom. And he was like, I don't know what that one is. That one might be dangerous. And I was like, sir, this is a puffball mushroom, and a lot of people like to eat them. It is a forageable item. And he was like, oh, so so do you like mycology? And I was like. Yeah, I do, actually. And he's like, there's a really great film on Netflix called Fantastic Fungi. And I was like, yes, yes, there is a fantastic show on Netflix called Fantastic Fungi. (laughs) We love it very, very much. Highly recommend if you have not seen it. It is delightful. But anyways, I love them. I love mushrooms. Always talking at them. And I love them so much that my spare bathroom has become my personal sterilized mushroom my mushroom haha because I I am inoculating and growing some edible delicacies like lion's mane and my Matthew calls me his mushroom princess that's that's the kind of obsession that I have (laughs) mushroom obsession obsessed so I know I'm a total nerd about this and I frequently watch people's eyes glaze over when I plunge into like scientific details and nuances behind the relationships mushrooms have with the trees, plants, death and rebirth just beneath the surface of our planet. Death is going to be a little bit of the topic today when I get into our shroom. Death. Death. Yes, we're going to talk yes. about death. Cue my chemro. In my 2008 emo scene girl haircut. Right? (laughs) Something that never truly fully went away. Oh, yes. But she has better taste and style now. Thank God. Absolutely. Developed and evolved. 
for sure. Yes. Yeah. 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 Now we have like death glam. Like, right. Here's my cute little skull. I have a cute little skull. Death glam. Anyways, yeah. we're going to get in to what many of us in the spore squad are really stoked about. And that is the crucial role some fungi play as the primary recyclers of the forest. Now, fungi and fungi are two different ways to pronounce the same word. One of them is going to be a bit more British and the other one a bit more American. And honestly, I tend to flip-flop back and forth because I'm neurodivergent and I can't keep one straight in my head. I also spell gray wrong regularly. I'll I'll spell it E-Y. A-Y or E-Y? E-Y. And then I'm like, oh, that's that's for the British and I'm not British. I am American. 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 Okay. I'm so easily distracted. Hi. Anyways. Okay. Fungi, fungi. Today we're going to be talking about saprophytic mushrooms and they deserve a bit of hype for being the most visible part of this hardcore ecological cleanup crew. They obtain their nutrients from dead organic matter and they help break it down into simple substances that can be used by all sorts of other plant life. And it is truly a beautiful circle. That's amazing. Oh, thank you. I'm so glad you think so. I'm going to tell you about a super cool saprophytic mushroom that can be found even in the winter. But first, we're going to talk about my bush. Yes. Not my bush, but a bush. Uh We're going to talk about... (laughs) Was that too far? Am I too... Is that... I don't know. Nah. Nah. Okay. So we're going to talk about a common decorative fruit that almost anyone would recognize. You want to guess what it is? Yes. Yes. Okay. No. (laughs) It was one of those moments where my brain just completely blanked out of all of the words. (laughs) This is the kind of comedy you can expect from (laughs) Anita Siskiolas. total (laughs) adhd moments all right so um i'm so sorry no you're okay this common decorative fruit that almost anyone would recognize is the crab apple oh you like those no (laughs) i just have a like a very strong association to our neighbor's yard and their crab apple tree I loved them. I loved, I mean, I have nothing against them or their crabapple tree. I just like, I remembered we couldn't eat them and they were everywhere. And my initial sticky. Yeah. 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 Wait, so tell me more. Why should I like the crabapple tree? Okay. So crabapple, crabapple, crabapple tree. Um, If we want to try the fancy Latin, it's malus silvestris. Mm-hmm. Um, ooh, fun. They are large shrubs or small trees, usually 15 to 30 feet tall. And yes, when we were kids, our neighbors had one in their yard. And do you remember trying to climb it? All the time. Yeah. All the time. We were always yeah. trying to climb this thing. And I don't know why, because we always got scraped up because it has like scaly bark with like little thorns. Yeah. Um, yeah, super rude. But I guess we weren't really respecting the tree's boundaries. So true. That's on us. Anyway, crab apples are native to North America and Asia, and in the U.S. and Canada, they're often planted ornamentally in parks 
along streets in yards and all sorts of other urban locations but you can also find them in country fields thickets and along the edges of woods you've seen lots of these in like portland and sioux falls yeah crab crab apples yeah yeah Yeah. absolutely they're around um there are 10 native species in the u.s and one of which is native to minnesota yay me um this is the prairie crab apple or malus luensis which i mean i took latin like once in a homeschool co-op so i'm not gonna say that that is my strongest skill but i will work really hard at sounding out latin vocabulary to the best of my ability so i appreciate that you're doing really great Thank you. So are you. It's not really important to distinguish between the actual species of crab apple trees, but they can sometimes be confused with plums or hawthorns. Oh. However, since the fruits of those trees are also edible, if you're looking for these guys, chances are slim you'd accidentally get like a poisoned apple. Which is good. You know, safety. Safety first. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Like definitely check your sources. And go to the library and get a plant identification book for your reason. And and thankfully for these ones, it's not going to be very dangerous. Like if you find a different apple tree, then you found a different apple tree. (laughs) It's just it's just another apple. So these tree blossoms usually appear in the spring, and they typically fruit in the summer with the little crabby fruits ripening in the fall, and they turn a bit of like a sunset hue of either orange, yellow, or red, depending on the species. And they're typically smaller than two inches, but sizes can vary. Are you ready for some fun botany words? Yes, please. Here we go for botany vocab. Okie doke. The ripened little orbs may have a calyx presence on the underside. The calyx is made of a whorl of five sepals, which were originally the flower's petals protective enclosure when it was a bud ah sometimes this falls off before um reaching maturity though so sometimes they don't have the calyx whorl of sepals wow try them out try them out this one calyx calyx sepals sepals whorl whorl like <laughs> like a whorl like w-h-o-r-l yeah, yeah. And Whoa. it's a pattern of spirals or concentric circles is what that means. All right. Yay, vocab. Yay. I think, I think calyx and whorl are my favorites. I've words. heard of the calyx. I've heard of that as it relates to like hibiscus. Yeah, yeah. Because I like offer hibiscus. vocab. <laughs> and hibiscus. <laughs> Back to the crabbies. Um, even though they ripen in the fall, the best time to pick them is actually in the winter because the freezing temperatures make them soft and sweet. Um, uh, what? And yeah, and it's a super easy fruit to forage because they're so recognizable. So all you really need is your hands in a container. And a lot of people didn't realize that you can eat them and they think that they're like poisonous. And yeah. um, while they can give you a stomach ache if you eat too many of them, especially if they aren't ripe, it it's very rare you're going to get anything worse than just a little upset tummy. Most people like to use them to make obvious things like jam or sauce or chutney. But while I was researching, I found some surprising suggestions. And I will share three of the funkiest ways people eat crab apples. Um, but being a fantastic baker yourself, do you want to take a guess at what any of those are? Like 
a crab apple pie or right like that sounds like normal right like crab apple pie okay yeah. you ready for this weirdness okay. okay so first the first one i found which i'm like i need to try this is directions for making crab apple fruit leather brilliant oh like honestly that would be such a good snack and then i found a quote unquote easy for beginners process for making crab apple liqueur oh what? right that would be amazing right it sounds delicious okay and then the most intriguing you ready for this okay <laughs> is a recipe for spicy pickled crab apples what oh my goodness <laughs> okay so would you have that on like how would you eat that did they give any practical applications they did they did yes. they said it's apparently great on roasted chicken or turkey okay or in addition to an appetizer plate oh i love that yeah like Which, a little charcuterie board with your with crab the, apples. A spicy pickled crabby. Yeah. That's genius. So, that was pretty. Well, pretty I think that fact. was one of my, something that I didn't like about it so much was I thought that we couldn't eat them. Right. So then they just all fell to the ground and seemingly were wasted. I know that they, you know, would break up and decompose and become nutrient to the earth. And I know that plant life and birds and other wild things would eat them but ultimately right. it was just like so many things rotting on the ground and I love that yeah. even to take just a few to repurpose into like a nourishing meal and and something fun yeah. and exciting like how how lovely it is to use something so common and just like make a special moment out of finding it yeah to make so, it um, make it into special make the magic out of it yeah, yeah. So that's my recommendation for next time you find a crab apple tree. Uh make make magic out of it, you know? Even if you're just like, hey, Instagram, did you know that you can make spicy pickled crabbies? <laughs> now I'm gonna move on to my mush, which I'm so stoked about. Okay. Are you ready? Ready. Wee. Okay, I'm gonna tell you about the birch polypore. Or Amatopsis betulina. 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 Okay. <laughs> okay. As I mentioned earlier, it is a saprophytic mushroom feeding off the dead and decaying wood of birch trees. I picked this one specifically because birch trees are fairly common around the Midwest where we're from, and they're also fairly recognizable. You're familiar with them, right? Well, I always get confused between birch and aspen, but yes. Yes. Oh my gosh. I'm so glad you brought that up because they can look kind of similar. I know that some of the leaves shake and some of the leaves sway, and that's how you can determine. That but is I one never know way. Yeah. which one. Well, um, aspen. Aspen are typically synonymous with just shaking leaves. But um, first, I'm going to give you some differentiators for birch, and then I'll tell you how they're different from aspen. So they're they're the pretty white paper peely trees, are birch. And the bark is smooth, varicolored, usually white, cream, maybe sometimes tan. And they are marked by horizontal pores, which usually peel in thin sheets. And it's a tree that humans have utilized for centuries, from early Buddhist manuscripts to Native American canoes, teepees, or moccasins. And the wood from the birch tree is flammable even when wet. So it's also a really great survival tool. Yeah. That's amazing. 
Right. How they differ from Aspen now. As an aspen grows, the lower base of the trunk is going to have bark that more closely resembles the typical bark you would find on a wood. It'll be kind of a tan, grayish, brown color, and it's going to have vertical crack lines. But they are also referred to as watchful trees because mm. the branch scars can look, look like, like eyes. eyes. Yeah, spooky. Yes. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. So- we I love them. They're super creepy. Some people think they're terrifying, but we're the Manditas Oscuras and creepy shit is our vibe. So you can definitely tell the difference between an aspen and a birch if the lower section of the tree looks like an elm or an oak. Okay. Um, otherwise, for a birch, it's going to be white throughout. So there's that. They have relatively short lives as trees. Um, since they only live about 80 to 140 years, um, they're emblematic of the northern woods of the United States, but native birches can be found across most of North America, Europe, and Asia, with at least 10 species most often found in our nation's cooler regions. Wow. Knowing what trees to look for helps with identifying related fungi. So birch polypores grow year-round on birch trees, and they grow around the world. They're usually saprobic, but it can occasionally be parasitic, playing a vital role in their ecosystem. They they look like little white hooves bulging out of the tree, and they range from like two to ten inches wide to about one to four inches thick. Huh. And they just kind of like, like if this is the tree, they kind of just like bulge out the side. And they're just like, like a hoof. Yeah, they look like hoops. Like oh, interesting. Hoops. Okay. Yeah. When they're young, the cap is like a creamy white color and the flesh doesn't really change color when it's cut or bruised. Like sometimes if you, even if you go to the grocery store and get like a little white button mushroom, if you like pinch it, you'll notice that it starts to bruise. So this guy doesn't really do that. Wow. He doesn't really bruise at all. But as it matures, it'll start to turn a dull brown tan color. When it's fresh, when it's alive and healthy, it is dense yet soft, a bit like a marshmallow, but like more rubbery. The underside is smooth and white. There are no gills, but it has little pores in it, tiny little pores. And the whole underside also turns tan or brown as the fungus ages. And it does not have a stem. So it kind of just bursts straight out of the tree. And it looks like it's just fully connected. Interesting. Like polypore means many pores. So what makes it a polypore is the fact that it doesn't have gills, but it has little spore-producing cells lining the pores. They tend to fruit in the spring, which means like you'll see them bulging out in the spring, but they can stay on the tree for many months to years. So long lives are really common in polypores. And then oh. when they die, they usually dry out still upon the tree and then sometimes eventually fall off. But you can also find these growing on trees that have already fallen since they are decomposers, since they are saprophytic, they will help eat away at the tree. Another reason this little guy is super cool is because of how its relationship to the birch tree plays a role in its medicinal capabilities. Oh. Ooh. So here's where our big disclaimer is. While the uses of many mushrooms can include health benefits, I want to clarify that I am providing this information for educational purposes only. 
there are many potential dangers of eating, using, misusing, misidentifying, improperly preparing foraged mushrooms, including possible death. I want to encourage everyone to be more observant in their experience of the natural world so they can become more confident with identifying trees, plants, and mushrooms. But I am not recommending anyone go oot in a boot, pluck a shroomsicle off a tree, and stick it in their mouth. Don't do that. Don't do it. <laughs> Talk to a professional first. <laughs> no, yeah. There's there's this quote in a book that Ariana got me for Christmas, actually. The book itself, wonderful. Highly recommend. It is called How to Forge for Mushrooms Without Dying. Mm, mm-hmm. We love that. Mm-hmm. And one of the quotes that has stuck with me, and it's fairly early on in the book, is there are old mushroom foragers and there are bold mushroom foragers, but there are not old and bold mushroom foragers <laughs> meaning you might die so <laughs> so so just to be a little cautious so just with all of that in mind let me tell you about some of this birch polypore sometimes known as birch conch the fungus soaks up properties from birch trees such as betulinic acid and that creates a super concentrated version within the mushroom form. And this has been known to treat wounds as an antiseptic because it helps stop bleeding and it even may initiate botopsis, which is the death of cancer cells. What? Yeah. So mushrooms are sick. Mushrooms are sick and there are definitely, oh my gosh, there's so many things happening in the medical and science field right now where people are utilizing so many different benefits of mushrooms for health purposes and on that note i recommend doing research on it it's great there's there's so much to know so much that is still being discovered but again please don't just plop things in your mouth while you're out in a boot should you be in dire straits out in the middle of the wilds and you are wounded you can use the outer layer of a birch polypore by peeling it off and wrapping it around a cut because it will stick naturally and it can help prevent the wound from becoming infected. So that is literally so cool. Dude, Nature is amazing. Nature is so that? fucking cool. Oh, it also contains an antibiotic that has been used to treat E. coli, a common <laughs> called, <laughs> yeah, pyptamine. This fungus has been used as an immunity booster, an anti inflammatory, and a viral and bacterial fighting agent. So there is a lot of history in using this mushroom medicinally. However, I am a huge proponent of the honorable harvest, which means not taking something if you aren't sure of what it is. And even if you are sure of what it is, not taking all of it, honoring the nature that is providing you with these wonderful, fantastic, and important nutrients or medicines, and making sure that we aren't over-consuming as our culture has kind of socialized us into yeah encouraged us into yeah absolutely i'm gonna wrap this baby up with some cool history connected to this fungi in 1991 the remains of a 5,000 year old man were discovered in the swiss alps so obviously there remains the body he was not alive he was deceased thank you for clarifying i I wasn't sure if that if i never mind okay so um, well he's known as Utsi, or the Tyrolean Iceman, he was found wearing a necklace strung with pieces of Amatopsis betulina, the birch polypore. 5,000 years ago, he had a necklace of this mushroom. 
According to researchers, he was likely using this fungus to treat intestinal parasites from which he was clearly suffering. And this is because birch polypore contains agaric acid and was used as a laxative to expel whipworms, an intestinal parasite. Oh my God. So yeah. So it was just like, it was basically like those candy necklaces, like the nineties candy, but he, his were mushrooms. What? 5,000 years ago. That's so insane. Right. Isn't that crazy? He also had 61 tattoos across his body that were hypothesized to offer him therapeutic benefits as they were created from small incisions that were traced with charcoal. And it's thought to be like an ancient type of acupuncture. Whoa. 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 Crazy pants. Anyways, um, I'm going to wrap it up with another quote from the wonderful Robin Wall Kimmerer. We are all woven together in the web of life. The plants, the animals, the mountains, the rivers, the stars, they are our relatives and we must treat them with respect just as we would treat our own family. Robin Wall Kimmerer is the author of Braiding Sweetgrass, Indigenous Wisdom, Scientific Knowledge, and the Teachings of Plants, and Gathering Moss, A Natural and Cultural History of Mosses, and The Democracy of Species. Highly recommend all of her works. All right. Do you feel like you learned a lot about mushes and bushes? I did. Bushes. Yes. Thank you. Learned so much. Okay. We're going to move into Stardust. You ready? Stardusty. All right. I thought it'd be cool to let you know about a planet that you can see in February. Venus is going to be rising in the east-southeast shortly before the sun this month. So, too, does the planet Mars. Woo! Woo! (laughs) Mars will be dimmer, making it harder to see compared to Venus, but if you're up early enough, maybe you can catch them. Some stargazing, I love that. to take a deep breath together yeah let's take a deep breath together we're gonna do a little square we're gonna inhale for four hold exhale for four hold for four inhale holding exhaling Okay. Such a good illustration of what I want to talk about. That little moment of box breathing represents the uh, opposing and yet forces that work together of the solar and the lunar energy. So when you hold your breath at the top of an inhale, that stimulates the pingala energy, the solar energy. And when you extend your breath at the bottom of an exhale, that um, stimulates the lunar energy, the ita energy. And that is what we're talking about today. My expertise in the yoga world, I've been in yoga practitioner for many years and was able to get my 200-hour YTT in 2018, then went on to study for my 500-hour. And in all of this, 
I have really been able to turn what I have learned about yoga, anatomy, the human body, as well as the sister science of Ayurveda into a very focused practice for women. That is what I do is work one-on-one with women to integrate natural cycles and rhythms into their own life to help you feel more empowered, embodied, and aligned with your divine energy. They state in the Ayurvedic texts that the moon has a great influence on the mind-body complex. We sometimes think that we are our mind. This is what psychology would teach, would be there is no separation between mind or body. It is only you are the mind and consciousness. And this is a it is not a polar idea, but it is it is an idea of like being more. We are the thoughts and the processes um, behind the mind. We stimulate the mind and the mind works, but we are we are something more. And for women, particularly as it, as it relates to this lunar energy, we are very aligned. Our bodies align with this with the energy of the moon. And I like to think of the energy of the moon as in female archetypes and the female archetype would be um would be stages stages of development and stages of um of growth so the first stage is maidenhood the maiden and this Mm -hmm. is childhood up until you reach the next stage which is motherhood nurturing creating and then moving on to the crone phase this is the phase of the wisdom being a wise woman and being being a leader and a teacher and sometimes within the archetypes of women they include a fourth phase this phase is the enchantress Ooh. and the enchantress is is wild in passion and for my purposes i like to think of the enchantress um through a different lens sort of as a joint as like a transition. So she could be in between a phase and another phase as this like really wild energy. And thinking about these archetypes from an Ayurvedic perspective, moving now from the stardust segment of the the phases of the moon and the life cycle of women into the soul segment where this can directly impact you and your life as a soul that inhabits a body and is in a complex with it. So we have to think of our soul, our emotions and our body as, as this trifecta that we are all working together. And from an Ayurvedic perspective, there is also those, those life cycles, that life cycle, that phase. So from, um, the childhood, the maidenhood phase, that is also the kapha phase. And then it grows to the pitta phase, which is the mother and the creator nurturer phase. And then that transitions again to the vata phase, which is the wise woman or seemingly the crone and how that, how those influences move throughout your life, but they also can move throughout the year. So this is symbolized and evidenced by the seasons. So throughout the year, the winter season is vata moving to kapha. And so the transition is the, um, like I was saying, the enchantress 
the multiple influences. So the influences that are coming from Vata and Kapha. So it can be a little bit more wild and more turbulent and there's much more going on. And then from spring is Kapha predominant moving into summer, which is Pitta. Again, that motherhood and creation and very active throughout the summer. And then until moving into the fall where things begin to slow down again, Pata moves into Vata. And how this can directly influence you in more of like a daily or for women particularly monthly, because we have a 28-day hormone cycle. And this is, once again, it is mirrored in this cycle. Right now, where we are recording, it's January 29th. And we're moving just from the, the first full moon of the year, which was the wolf moon. And we're moving into a waning moon. Right now, the moon is once again turning toward the dark side of the moon. (laughs) The dark. (laughs) And what this waning energy of the moon represents is that vata stage. Vata is in the body. It is it is kinetic movement. So it is transportation as as it relates to menstruation. It is the flow stage of menstruation. So this is it is clearing the body. Clearing the body. Is clearing the body. The female menstruation cycle is closely attuned to the moon. That is this monthly cycle that is a cleanse, a purification of the female creative essence and energy. Ayurvedic practices encourage the alignment with nature's cycles, solar and lunar. And for women, it can be very beneficial. It can be very beneficial to align your cycle with the moon or even just to be watchful of it. As we are moving into this waning moon, of release. Like I said, the Vata energy is transportation and movement. And so it is a release of anything that no longer serves you. Ooh, that sounds like a great journal prompt. Right. And so this can be, this can be kind of as big as you want to make it. And what I think is so important about this particularly is releasing anything that no longer serves you, but serves your highest purpose, serves your highest potential. And in order to determine what that is, if you're starting from the beginning, you need to have an awareness of where you are going, what it is that you're wanting to bring. The moon influences in a calm and soothing way. And is that something that you want to bring more into your life? Um, especially in this time of winter of rest and restoration, it would be very, um, what is that word where two things are, they're fighting, they're, oh, they're fighting, conflicting. Yeah. It can be very conflicting. Thank you. Yeah. (laughs) To be in this stage. Banana split. Like what? They're doing this. (laughs) Sorry. Okay. Start with feel conflicting internally to be going through a stage of rest and restoration with the season and then externally being super active and. Oh, like setting goals for the new year and trying to start fresh while everything still feels like it's not yet fresh. Exactly (laughs) like that. Exactly like that. Everything is in 
I mean, animals are literally in their hibernation mode. The plants yeah. have all gone into a hibernation mode. The sun is not in the sky as often as it would be in another time of year. So these are all very natural signs to begin to reflect and turn inside. And this is when we can really begin to contextualize and begin to start this like planting the seeds yeah sowing the seeds of making those plans first mm -hmm. if we're going to be making plans and making changes to reach our highest potential we need to be aware of where we're going so we need to and be where we're starting yeah yeah you got to be you got to build the awareness of where you are what I see women struggling a lot with in this area is having an idea for wanting to change and thinking that it has to get going right away. But the beginning stages, oh. the rest stage, this is so vital to the future success of any goal that you make. And so what I would suggest for this time as we're moving through this phase in the month, as we're moving through this phase in the year of self-evaluation and introspection. And I found that in my research, I pulled this from the Harvard Business Review. It says that even though most people believe that they are self-aware, so they believe that they are aware of their bodies as they move through space, aware of their minds, aware of their thought processes and emotions, only 10 to 15% of people actually fit the cr criteria of being aware. That's such a small percentage. It's a small percentage. And what, I, what I've noticed in my research and in my experience is that people are not so much self-aware. I, I have not so much been self-aware as self-critical. Ooh, <laughs> as, good distinction. Right. So you can be very judgmental of yourself and be aware of all of the ways that you think you are coming up short and falling falling short of some standard. Yeah. But are you aware of of all of the aspects or is it only the critical aspect that you're that you're thinking of? Well, because so, if you consider like most people's self-talk, it is very hyper judgmental. Like most people's communication with themselves is like, oh, if you make a mistake, you're like, oh, I'm so stupid. It's not, yeah. it's not like, oh, I can learn a lesson. I can do better. Like you really have to practice to get to that level of self-talk. Yes. And one of the ways that you can be sure that that is true is by observing the way people are judgmental externally. When <laughs> we are very judgmental of others, you can, you can hedge a pretty good bet that you're going to be pretty judgmental of yourself because it begins within. So next time you are thinking something, something critical, something judgmental, something harsh about somebody else, there's, there's nothing that I want you to do other than to forgive your own self for the same thing that you're judging somebody else for, because I can't guarantee, but I'm pretty sure that that seed lies somewhere deeper within you versus somewhere external and out there. And so this, this self-critical aspect can, can coincide with what is a psychological term and it is intellectualizing. The BetterHelp website defines intellectualizing as someone 
intellectualizes emotions when they seem like obstacles and they shut them out in favor of being emotionally detached, rational, and intellectual. So instead of validating emotion, you're just cutting off the emotional aspect in favor of over-intellectualizing, which can cause you to be very hypercritical of somebody else's perhaps emotional choices or emotional responses when they do not make logical sense because emotions often don't. And this all comes from an attachment to feeling like emotions are bad or something to avoid or feeling like all of your emotions have been bad or something that you are too hard to face. Um, and this is where really diving into mindfulness practices can help to to integrate those things. Yoga, yoga asana, which is the practice of poses and moving through a sequence, um, is a tool developed initially to clear blockages of energy within the body, increase the flow of prana, which is the life force that moves within and throughout your body, and then to ready the mind for, for meditation, to release excess energy and to bring yourself into a state where you are able to sit in comfort and to be still. And then meditation is the next step where you can learn to be aware of the thoughts and emotions that are tied up within them without being judgmental. It is just a, a seat for viewing, perhaps like opening a window in your mind and just being aware of what is going on. And so that awareness truly is key in order to release that, which perhaps is not serving you at this time, to, to let go and surrender. But first you need the awareness. So what is it that is serving your highest potential, your highest, your highest vision for yourself? And what is anything within your life right now that could be let go and could be released? I love this so much. Sometimes when I'm thinking about these kinds of uh, mindfulness prompts, I'm also, sometimes it feels a little bit hard to connect with or resonate with highest self, especially if you struggle with like, negative self-talk or a lot of shame sometimes it can be hard to visualize what highest self really means and so for me a tool that I've started to use recently is favorite self like oh I love that self, yeah the self that feels like joy and like all sorts of these positive emotions but not only positive emotions but positive effects on the world around me mm. like that sometimes helps me visualize then that highest self in a more relatable way. I love that, sense. right? Because it's like you're not necessarily planning for some future or for some future version of you that you don't yeah. know. It's like, right. what, what are you cultivating that you love about yourself? And that can be so hard to find. Yeah. If your self-talk if you have only others ever seen other other women and examples in your life who have that negative self-talk, who are hypercritical, and that is why it can be so confining to be in that place because it's like, what do I even look for? Yeah, what is something that I could achieve? What is something that I could want, could like? I do remember that in my own yoga teacher training, thinking like, what is something that I like about myself? And it was like, eek, there wasn't a lot. 
back then. And so it started small. It can be so small. Like, right. I feel really good when I'm with this one person. Okay. What is that? Why is it like that? Why, right. why or am like, I able to why... be more bubbly in this situation versus this situation? Yeah. Yeah. For me, it was the, when I was starting this, I was going through a divorce in Las Vegas and this journey took me outdoors a lot, which I kind of, I separated myself from my relationship with nature for a long time, just because I wasn't really in a community that prioritized it. I wasn't really in a community at all for a while. And so I kind of lost myself quite a bit. And so when I started doing this work, I was regularly going for hikes and regularly going for like meditative walks out in like the desert. And I got lost several times, but it also was like, oh, wait, no, this is a part of genuine me. Like this, mm -hmm. this is me reconnecting with myself and this gives me joy. And if I can prioritize that and investigate that relationship and see all of the other benefits within there, then I'm able to align that part of me with my visual of my highest self. I love that so much. So it's almost like we should get out into nature all the time. We should basically just live outside. Okay. <laughs> we can do that. Just plant a garden every single day. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, dun, 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 dun. Yay. <laughs> this is my cult. Join us outside for woo-woo and happy times. We'll be, we'll be outside. Catch us outside. <laughs> Catch us outside. Catch us outside. How about that? How about that? Yeah. And you mentioned something that I love too, which I think I'll save for perhaps our next podcast, but it's that curiosity and investigation. Like I'm going to figure out why I feel so good when I'm in yeah. this situation. So we'll have to go into that next time. But I did oh, want to know, it. Alexia, if you had one thing that our community could walk away from this podcast with today? If there was one thing they walked away with, what would it be? I would love for people to walk away from this encouraged and emboldened to be observant in nature, whether you're just taking a walk around the block or finding a nice wooded area and a trail, trying to recognize the different kinds of trees around you. And maybe if you find a birch tree, you'll see a birch polypore growing up on it. And I think that observance can help connect you to nature that sometimes feels so wild and separate. It's really not. I love that so much because my one thing. Oh, I'm so excited to hear. Is Okay, so my one thing, if you took away one thing from this episode, I hope that it is that you are a mystical being who is influenced by the cosmic force of the moon as well as the cosmic source of nature and inherent divinity that is within you. And I want you to embrace the fluctuations of that energy and be an observer of that essence within. So yes. as within, as without, when observe. you observe your reality within and you observe the beauty and the wonder and the magic within, you'll begin to see that without also as you are moving throughout and observing all of those 
polypores. Those polypores. All right, guys. Well, this has been the Stardust and Soil Enchanted Soul Podcast Episode 1. So we are going to say, go forth, Cosmic Compost Baddies, and And blaze a trail trail through through the the existential void. Please join us next time. Please join us next time. This has been a Manitas Oscuras production. Manitas Oscuras. Goodbye. Goodbye. Bye, babes. Like and subscribe. Like and subscribe. Additionally, it would be really fantastic if you found us and connected with us on social media. So you can find me at almava.alchemy on Instagram. And currently, you can find Ariana at Luz Yoga Yoga on Instagram. We hope you are able to use these resources wherever you may be. Keep in mind, we are in the Midwest, so if you're elsewhere, your experience may vary, and that's okay. There are beautiful connections to make with our planet wherever you are, and we would love to hear from you to learn more about your perspective as well. Please see our show notes for additional information, citations, and disclaimers. You can also find our social links in there. We love you. Thank you. Goodbye. Love you. Bye. Love you. Bye. Bye.